Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That's me. We are a podcast happily devoted to startups and entrepreneurs, accelerators, incubators, founders, and also the VC Angel uh, family office investor community that serves them and that works with them. Um, you can find us, of course, on every major podcast platform, including Apple, Audible, Amazon, you name it. And also, uh, we are now on video. We always have been actually on YouTube, but we have added uh, Spotify on video. So both audio and video on Spotify. Please subscribe. Give us a nice rating. Tell your friends. Share it. Um, and uh, we appreciate all of that. So today, I'm very excited. Um, you know, uh, I'm going to welcome to the podcast Chris Stotts. Um, welcome, Chris. Great, uh, great to have you. He is a uh, global. He is the global entrepreneur in residence at Founders Institute, which is a is a global startup accelerator uh, and other things as well. And he is the managing director at Responsible Solutions with his partner, Russell Brand. Uh, we'll get into all of that. But Chris, it's great to have you. Thanks for doing this. You know, I'm such a fan, Michael. I think you're such a shining light in the global startup ecosystem. You know, oh, so, and oh, you've been oh, such a supporter. Oh, yeah, we're done. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, you, you get, that's the Chris Foltz charm that you're going to get. And, you know, it's, it's really one of those things. I've been a fan of you. I've listened to your podcast for a while. And I know you've been a huge supporter of a lot of the things I've been doing in Africa. And you know, I'm like, why, why is Michael Conniff out here supporting me like this? So I'm, I'm honored to be here with you. Well, ditto. And I, I, it's nice of you to say that. I think we've done, uh, I know we've done over 50 of these. And I feel like um, this this podcast in particular with you is kind of like, the beginning of chapter two of this podcast, um, because it's been great. We've talked to lots of founders, but I feel like I'm getting enough knowledge and enough understanding of it to be dangerous, to be more dangerous now. And so um, it's I think it's really going to get interesting. But, you know, I want to start actually with uh, what you're doing with Founders Institute. Um, and then we'll get into your incredible personal story. But the Founders Institute stuff. So I, I came across you because. You seem to be everywhere. You went. You seem to go on a world tour, where you were working with startups in in how many countries? Give us a list of some of the countries. I mean, you know, like just in Africa alone, six six countries inside of there. But you know, um, I, I'm I was the top rated mentor in the Bellinix region, Amsterdam, Luxembourg, all of that, Sweden. Um, you know, Abuja, Nigeria, all the way to Kampala, Uganda, uh, Accra, Ghana, South America, and then you get into the the Gulf region and, you know, really touching. It's like this, Michael, you know, in Founder Institute, historically, these have all been in, in silos, right? So each city, each kind of country has their own programs. And during the pandemic, I accidentally started mentoring in Abuja, Nigeria. And I, you know, I was, I was based in San Francisco program, um, which was very exciting. There was a cannabis accelerator, believe it or not there. And I've spent some mm -hmm. time working in that industry. So it was a great experience. And I did so well there and, and uh, made some impact that they brought me over to Silicon Valley. Somebody reached out to me on LinkedIn from Abuja, Nigeria, and they're like, hey, Chris, can we do office hours? You know, as mentors, we're more or less teachers at a university, if you will. And and I said, of course, I would, I would love to do office hours, not realizing that that's not really an option in the system. Um, you know, so I got to do that. And then from there, I guess it has been a world tour. And, and um, you know, I've been able to to see things from different perspectives. You know, I think... We mm -hmm. all get, you know, focus on Silicon Valley, right? You know, I, I spent some time working in, in Colombia this past year with some founders down there. 
And I'm telling you, that's toe to toe. What I saw there, toe to toe with Silicon Valley. Same thing uh, in uh, the UAE, in, in, in Qatar, these areas. Some of the most prolific things I'm seeing right now aren't just based in Silicon Valley anymore. And that's mm-hmm. exciting. I think um, my theory on that is that, of course, the pandemic had a lot to do with that because, um, and I sort of put that together with Zoom and with video conferencing because all of a sudden, uh, everyone was having conversations. And if you were in Colombia, other other than the time difference, um, though there isn't a, much of a time difference in Colombia, right? But if you're talking to Qatar, Qatar or, or, or UAE or other places, there's these big time differences. Big. But other than that, when you're once you're up and talking to somebody, it's just a level playing field. Uh, level you know, I was scared. I was really scared, Michael. <laughs> like you bring up the level playing field. You would think that, right? Right when you're going in. I had an imposter syndrome. I was scared to death to be a mentor in Sweden, in London, right? You know, uh, I was accepted in Africa. I was accepted in India. But how are the Europeans going to take this ultra American individual that I am? You know, I have all the faults that any American can have. You live in Las Vegas and you have like some kind of lava lamp behind you. So, yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. I yeah. So people, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very much so. And, but you're wearing you know, a Patagonia hat if you're listening. You, see, you know, got the lava lamp and the Patagonia hat. So I am. And believe it or not, I'm, and I worked in cannabis at one point. You would just think I was around in the 60s for that matter. But, you know, I've, I've just, uh, I'm an ordinary guy that that's, uh, done some extraordinary things but the only reason for that is because i do extra right and and that's why i'm involved in all these countries you know this last year michael i was honored to the one of the first startups that i mentored out of abuja nigeria a company called woman of eight um working towards helping close the gap in stem careers for women in nigeria that was just named startup of the year in the continent of africa and i mean that was a pretty yeah. yeah, it's a pretty remarkable thing, but that's the great world of acceleration that we have. And, so me, and people like me, you, gotta, you asked, you, we met originally around Africa, but uh, let me point out to you, I just retweeted something today. It's something called STEM Girls in Africa okay. yeah. uh, with a plea that they're about to run out of money. So if uh, if you go to my LinkedIn account, you'll see that 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 post. Um so it's still, you know, it's still obviously an issue, as are many things in Africa. But I want to, I want to, before we move on, I want to drill down on this. Okay, what does it take to be rated the best uh, mentor advisor to accelerators? Um, what, what is the the Chris uh, Fold secret sauce? You know, the the truth of the matter is, is, you know, um, I guess it's being authentic, you know, Michael, um, Mm -hmm. authenticity is the new disruptive. Yeah, you know, and and, and there's a big difference between uh, being um, authentic and being honest, right? You know, authentic is kind of a thing that pertains to you and it requires you being vulnerable, like, you know, to to explain to the startup founders all your failures um, and, and helping them avoid that is more important. And, you know, Russell and I, we, we work with a lot of interesting from rocket engines to, you know, uh, farms, and we're really focused on education right now. And, you know, I've been in the rooms with big people in education, I learned from them. But I also go learn from elementary school teachers, right, about the mm-hmm. needs. And, you know, because I have these kind of diverse perspectives, I think it changes the game. And, you know, I'm also different than most mentors, right? And uh, I do office hours. I, I do sessions at 4 a.m. in different countries. And mm-hmm. for me, it's, it's, it's not some quest to be the best. It's the quest to learn. You know, learning mm-hmm. is a gift, right? And I spend as much time as possible learning from everyone. 
and then I spend just a tad bit less than that teaching. And as long as I keep that ratio in place, I expect to make more impact along the way. Well, um, I think it's pretty clear you've made a, you've made a huge impact, but I want to, um, uh, talk about the authenticity or authenticity. So when I teach my storytelling for startup workshops, um, uh, that is the first thing I say, I say this entire presentation figuring out your story as a founder is about authenticity. It's about knowing who you are. So tell us, um, and I know you have a, a, what I would call kind of a fraught personal story. Um, So tell us, take us kind of to the, I want to, I want to hear the whole thing to to the beginning. And, and uh, I know you've been through addiction and, and still, um, you know, um, are, are on guard about that. Um, and still are, you know, doing what you have to do to stay clean and sober, et cetera, uh, uh, and straight. I'm a survivor, buddy. Right. And that's really, that's really right. So, so I think this is important because I think, you know, people expect, they think that those who have done well have not had to deal with the same kind of problems they have, but let's start right. I'm going to let you start wherever you think the story is. You know, it's like this. Michael, like all of my experiences really is what, what basically gives me the ability to help people these days, right? So I'm very candid about it. There's even a thing on BBC about my addiction um, where it says uh, a trip to the dentist uh, led to Vicodin addiction in prison, right? So when that comes out on the BBC talking about me, you know, that, you know, it puts things in perspective. But you see, that was after I, I was in recovery, you know, so I, my first addiction was politics. I started that when I was 12 years old, right? You know, I, when you grow up in Republican Party politics and start being a strategist before you're old enough to drive, um, work on your first presidential race before you're old enough, old enough to vote, you get this really jaded perception of reality. And, you know, ultimately, uh, out on the campaign trail, I got a call from back home and my mom, who I love dearly, um, was diagnosed with, can- with cancer. So I moved back home to her basement. And where was that? I'm originally from Rockford, Illinois, not too far okay. away from Chicago. My parents were both in law enforcement for 35 years. So it was a very interesting upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I come from a Sicilian family, you know, uh, although Foltz is my last name, that's my dad's side. On my mom's side, it's Terranovas and Arbeces. And so when, when your family member gets sick, you come home and help, right? That's just built into the culture. And I came home to help and I had a Vicodin prescription left over from when I had my wisdom teeth pulled. And I literally made a photocopy of this and went out and filled up and got about almost three months worth of Vicodin and did all of that in two weeks. Now, you either come out of this dead or addicted. And if I had to pick two or one of those things, I guess I'm more happy that I was addicted. But and this was because you were so upset about your mother. You know, I don't want to blame it on that, right? It was, I was so upset with that myself. That was the trigger. That was the trigger. Yeah, well, it, it perhaps added to the equation, but it was more that I was feeling inadequate being the person I was. My mother was sick and not being able to help her. You know, I moved myself away from politics. Actually, I did get involved in local races. Um, the funny thing is, it, deep in my addiction, I was the campaign manager for a, ma- a part in a sheriff's race in that county. You know, so imagine you know, running a sheriff's race while you're an addict. Yeah. I can't imagine, but, and, and Chris, I just, forgive me for interjecting, but um, just today I, I got a call, uh, an email from an entrepreneur in um, Africa that I'm helping. And he said um, his mother, it's like your story. He said his mother had died. It kind of sent him into a spiral. And um, he, he took two weeks off from his business, which was a very smart thing to do. And he got help. 
and he sought help. And now he's, you know, he's kind of back on track. I'm sure he's dealing with a lot of stuff, but he said, you know, my mother died, my co-founder left and I just kind of, um, it's trauma. You know, Those are traumas, was, Michael. Was you know, and, yeah. 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 So, and, so and, and burnout's going. a result of trauma, right. To be honest. Yeah. And you know, what is interesting is how I handled all this, right? So my mother passed away. That's what stopped the addiction. And ultimately, um, a judge, one of the first political campaigns I worked on, um, I, I did a what would be considered a petty crime, a petty theft. You do a lot of weird things to support addiction at that time. And he put out a quarter million dollar warrant for me. Now, this would have been something you're out of jail for $300. Not me. Quarter million dollar bail uh, bond set. And he knew I would die from drug addiction. And he was good friends with my mom. And I, I thank him to this day, Ron White, Judge Ron White in Winnebago County, Illinois. He basically, I spent the next 119 days in jail. During that time, everything I owned in my mom's house, her house was foreclosed upon, everything was thrown into to the garbage, the dumpster. I, I had nothing. But you see, when I was in jail, Michael, and, and I met a lot of interesting people. And, you know, some of them were corner drug dealers that if you taught them some Wall Street techniques, they'd be the best stockbrokers. And some of them had um, street businesses. And if they just had a little bit more entrepreneurial training, they would have tremendous breakout success. So I knew that I needed to find a way to take my political career and 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 uh, and help people when I got out of jail. And I guess I was my first client, if you will. I needed to figure out how to channel all this stuff into, I chose entrepreneurship. So I started a public relations firm, realizing that a lot of people like me would have scarlet letters coming out of jail. And I wanted to help them kind of break through from that. And, and it grew and it grew and it became larger and larger. And we had 400 clients around the world. And it wow. became to the point where those type of people that I set out to work with weren't the client roster anymore. You know, we, it was, it was somewhat upsetting. Um, you know, they were big, everything I should have been happy about. I wasn't because it wasn't my original intention. And then I got a call one day from back home, my best friend who I got into addiction with, they found him dead of a heroin overdose. Ultimately my addiction went from Vicodin to Oxycontin to heroin in a very short period of time. And um, I tried everything to prevent my friend from dying, you know, and give him opportunity and jobs, nothing worked. So at that point I had an office floor in downtown Chicago's River North, a posh area of Chicago, uh, all these celebrity clients and people all over the world. And I was on television the next day and I went on and basically told the world I'm no longer taking clients. And that I was going to move my office to the most dangerous neighborhood in Chicago. Some would call it the hood. I put that up in quotes for those listening because uh, it's not me. Um, and at the end of the day, I figured if I couldn't stop my friend from dying, I could perhaps stop people from starting. So we spent the next three years doing everything we could for free, um, helping startups in the south side of Chicago, the west side of Chicago, building neighborhood farms, you know, building renewable energy systems and just amazing stuff where I really got to see what it's like when you have everything kind of against you and still we found the ability to make success with that. So that's what ultimately really started my entrepreneurial journey, Michael. Uh, yeah, that that's incredible. So you were, you were still in Chicago at that point, I suppose. Yes. And, um, yes. but, and you were sort of working on the ground with um, entrepreneurial type people or people who are starting businesses in some cases, but, but, the 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 world of um, accelerators and entrepreneurs was really still ahead of you. So what led to that? Yes. So what happened was, ironically, I um, I built this one machine that would that would recycle water. We needed to have something to take rainwater in a domestically battered women's shelter and, and give them fresh water for this neighborhood farm. And ultimately, um, I built this thing and it worked really well that um, we did a showcase at my office in the west side of Chicago 
with the little inventions. You know, somebody called me the Elon Musk of Chicago at that time because we were doing, you know, innovative things. But for the for the neighborhoods that are often forgotten and somebody from the cannabis industry said, listen, we need this particular thing out in Nevada. Um, you know, the industry's brand new there. We need to recycle water. There is no water in the desert. Let's right. work on this. So they brought me out there and I got in. It was the first role I had in the cannabis industry, served as an executive. Those owners did not get along well. So that company didn't go anywhere. And then I did my own pursuits in that industry and moved all the way up in the largest media media company in cannabis where I was the number two there. And they were uh, I was chosen to be a mentor in this brand new accelerator that Founder Institute was doing in San Francisco cannabis that was going to be focused on cannabis industry, yeah. right? And yeah. at that point, I had such diverse experience in that industry, um, you know, and it's not about touching plants for me. You know, I, I care about the educational outcomes that come from the tax dollars from cannabis. I care about these worldly things that come from it. The cannabis is no different to me than rocket, rocket engines. Sorry, cannabis industry, I love you. Um, but, you know, to me, it's about what can be done with this. And I took that one mentoring... I. I some of the greatest mentors ever were in that program. Like, you know, all the cool kids table from the cannabis industry, some of the most effective leaders were in there in Founders in, Founder Institute's program. And um, I went on to actually be the top rated mentor in that program my first time. And, and um, I think it was because I spent that time in jail. I spent that time on the ground working in the neighborhoods that nobody wants to go in. And I spent that time building technology that helped an industry, right? So from there, it's been the world from there. And it's so funny, Michael, I, I'll be working in somewhere like Africa. And then when somebody finds out that I have some cannabis industry experience, all of a sudden, 10 hands raise in the room uh, because you see these innovations in the cannabis industry from a farming perspective happening all over the world now. And America's leading that way. Um, so it's great to at least have that knowledge in my wheelhouse. And when you talk to an entrepreneur, or you talk to a founder, um, what, what, you know, I know when I talk to a founder, I have something pretty specific I want to know pretty quickly. Um, what's your What's your approach? What's your technique? What do you, you want? Know what, to know? what do you want to know yeah. walking in? You know, Russell and I are somewhat different than this, right? And, and and Russell really likes to look at the kind of mechanics, right? There's there's a lot of things that'll cancel you out to an investor. You know, so many people try to get people to say yes. It's about eliminating the ability for them to say no. And where I generally find that I like to spend my time on the human being, right? You know, that I believe in the prospects of humanity, Michael, and that's why I work in acceleration because startups are, is, is such a huge component of innovation for this planet, right? And, and, and even realms beyond this planet for that matter, you know? So um, to me, it's all about the founder and the team and how the founder talks about their team members, right? And there's, you can tell, you can tell the difference between somebody that, you know, I like to break leaders down into three buckets, creators, doers, and fixers. Creator, fixers are in the middle for that matter. Creators, fixers, and doers. And I'm a fixer, right? You know, I kind of a blend of both a doer and a creator. But you see, sometimes there's different techniques, different leaders. It's about leadership, okay? Anybody can build something revolutionary just by building a team. But can you lead it to get where it needs to be to change the world? And that always comes down to the team, even to me, before traction. But what... what um... Okay, so then I would translate that a little bit by saying you're looking, um, you're either looking for leadership qualities in the leader um, uh, and or you're looking for leadership potential. So, so what, what are some of the, um, the tells, if you will, 
You're in Las yeah. Vegas. I can use that phrase. What are the tell? That works, right? What are the right tell? away? Right away, Michael. If they don't know their customer, we'll know. Russell and I will know in five minutes whether okay, a company's going to be successful. Is that is that leadership though? Um, it, yes, it is because some people to be a strong leader, you need to get away from your own bias, right? And um, it's important to understand your bias. It's important to understand what you're effective at, and and ultimately that leads down to them truly understanding their stakeholders, right? Great leaders understand their stakeholders. Customers are stakeholders, just like team members, just like investors. So when they take the time to actually try to cancel themselves out from being a company first by proving that there is no market, that's that takes strong tenacity and leadership. That's mental toughness. You know, sure everyone thinks they're going to start. You said they try to can't, what do you mean by cancel? You know, what, what generally what happens is when people go out there and survey whether they're going to have a product offering or something like this, they're always looking for people to confirm it, right? And it's very easy to find a room of a hundred people to say yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But okay. you see what it is, is you need to go out there and you need to try to disprove the validity of your product in the market, right? And when you do that, you save so much time. You know, so Russell and I, we're, you know, we used to focus on working on helping people become successful. What we focus on now is preventing failure. If we can prevent failure, that's doing much more for the universe than just focusing on the small bucket of people that are most likely going to be successful already. The biggest fear that I have, Michael, is this, that because the leaders aren't prepared, they don't know their customer, whatever the reason may be, that the solution to something like addiction, the solution to something like cancer ends up dying on the floor in some Silicon Valley warehouse because the failure rate of startups is 92%. And oftentimes people have the greatest ideas, but why they fail is because people don't know how to lead. People don't know how to form the right team. People don't know how to understand their own shortcomings because when you do that, and you have an idea that customers say they want, you're going to have success. And I could tell right away by the leader if they're going to have success. So how do you prevent failure? If so, you go and you, you meet with an, you meet with the founder and you're like, okay, he's going to fail. First of all, what are, what are kind of the, the one or two or three things you see that indicate failure? And then how do you fix it? You know, there's always a sometimes a, a challenge with people that are scientist founders, right? Mm -hmm. You know, here you have people that they may have a deck that starts out with 200 pages, their pitch deck. And I'm like, what? They have every detail, every fact, everything in there. And they're right. They've got patents and everything. But the likelihood of them having success, the way they present it, the way that they they share it with other people is very, very low. So it's not that they don't have something that matters. It's just going to get put to the bottom of the pile when some analyst and a VC is looking into things mm -hmm. because that analyst doesn't understand their pitch. So like, you know, being able to relate and teach the people in the room when you're presenting is absolutely important. Um, narrative, the persuasive argument that people make that's often missing. Jenny Chang, my colleague out of San Francisco, she always focuses on making sure that there's a per persuasive narrative that's going on throughout the thing. You know, there's an MIT study that came out and said, do your headlines tell the story? Do your, do your pitch deck slide headlines tell the story? If nobody read anything on the page, could they just read those and understand what you're doing? That's key as well. Overvaluation is a huge problem. So, um, so storytelling being my personal sweet spot as a writer, um, my whole life. Um, and I think I just want to put a plug in for storytelling here, which is that um, it's more important than brand. And I've, I've it definitely I've, is. But I have figured out why I think 
So brand, brand and brands are an externality. Okay, there's something that happens outside, you know, in the marketplace, you know, when people are interacting with your product or service. Story is an internality. In other words, I don't even know if that's a word, but it's hey, we made it up here live. It's internal, right? So what that means is that authenticity, authentic story coming from your personal experience, just like you with the cannabis and having all the things you went through to get up to that point. But the authenticity of the personal story should drive everything ideally it doesn't always it doesn't always it doesn't have to but ideally it does um and um and i think that that's for me that's my secret sauce you know there's one thing more I, important than that michael yeah go that's ahead. the one thing that there's one thing more important than storytelling and the business i'm in is story creating right if and, and that means from the very beginning making sure that the founders are creating the correct story and then actually getting that story told, right? And so sometimes how do you do that's that? a different... how, do you, how, do you, how do you do that? You know, when I was in PR, people would come to me all the time and said, Chris, we want to be on the news. And I would say to them, no problem. Do something newsworthy, right? Same principle when it comes down to creating a story. You know, it's about really what is the journey that you've gone on to discover this product matters. You know, sometimes we need to go out there and create a pilot that creates a narrative that's worth being told, right? So in order to, for storytelling to be successful, we have to make sure that they're out there creating the right future for themselves. The right mm -hmm. story is being created and written every single day. You know, startup, uh, the whole startup ecosystem is, is a process, not an event, right? So that very process mm -hmm. starts with you know, basically telling yourself, this is the story I want to create. It's very interesting what they do at Amazon when they come up with product innovation. They have their product engineers and everything write a press release and more or less say about the product they're going to do that. One of the first steps. And then they basically go and look at that press release that was written by somebody that's not a press person, but it's them saying what they want the world to believe about this product when it comes out. And that really helps them peel back and understand what the steps are to get there. And, and I, I want to underline that just if people don't know what you're referring to. So under Jeff Bezos, Amazon, the way they present a new idea is with a six page press release. So <laughs> if somebody comes into a meeting with Jeff Bezos or other executives, they hand out a press release and uh, that's six pages and they all spend 15 minutes reading it before anyone says a word. And then they discuss what the what the press release what's in the press release. I, I would add one little bit of um, seasoning to that, which is that um, stories and storytelling um, can be, in my opinion, can be aspirational. So I think this goes to to what you're saying about creating a story. You can aspire to something, right? That's really important. You may not be that person today. You probably are not that company today, but you can aspire to it and you can tell that story. You can tell the story about how you're going to do that. And that can be really, really persuasive. You know, in, 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 in this world, there's short-term success and that mm -hmm. only takes one win. You don't even need to have a good product. You just need to have a medium to talk about an idea and you can have a win as a company. Long-term success requires you to have you know a plan a model to get somewhere understand your customer and mm -hmm. it's not about the idea it's much putting is putting into practice but you need to have two wins then a win for you and a win for your stakeholders your customers right but if you want to change the world michael and a lot of people come to me and they're like chris my, my idea is going to change the world that requires vision and vision is something that allows you to see beyond the status quo and it requires three wins always a win for you 
a win for your stakeholders and a win for the world. Um, that means, and you know who else lives in the world is your, is your competitors, right? So when you find a way to partner with your competitors on some initiative that benefits all of your customers, realize those are the things that I've always focused on doing the outside the box approaches, such as partnering up with our competitors towards an initiative that impacts people, right? And when you do these things, that's where real acceleration comes from in the actual business launch. Think outside the box relationships are the answer to that. So I can't believe it, but we're really just about out of time. I'm going to ask one, one last question, um, Chris, which is, um, what would you say to that entrepreneur in Africa that I mentioned? You spent a lot of time in Africa, but basically he's uh, he's just gotten back, actually not into the office because he also lost his office. <laughs> well, he has, he's it. in his home, right? So he's remote. Um, and, you know, like every entrepreneur, he's running out of money and um, he's got a great idea, but he's really questioning Everything. I love I love that this is the thing, Michael. You know, it's like this. I've been spending my time working with the Evergreen Fund and Red Door Life. It's a it's a you know, one of these treatment centers for people with trauma and recovery and all this and we're bringing accelerators inside of that program, I right? That. I can only imagine how much more my life would been if when I was in recovery at the very beginning, it was in a process of entrepreneurial um um, you know, recovery. This is the thing. What you learn from addiction is very powerful. What you learn from trauma in life is very powerful. The entrepreneurship world is trauma riddled. Every single day is a roller coaster for people in this. Yeah. So this guy is definitely, my friend in Africa, you're definitely ahead of where you think you are. You just need to understand how to channel the experiences, even the painful ones, right. into right. things that help you get across the finish line. It's what grit is. In people in recovery, people that have faced addiction, people that have started over, doesn't matter if it's from a divorce, doesn't matter if it's from bankruptcy, doesn't matter if it's from drug and alcohol addiction, you have grit. You know how to overcome obstacles, right? And so I would love to talk to this person. There's a support group uh, that we've created um, that's literally for entrepreneurs in recovery, right? And it, it's built around channeling that. So I'd be happy to get him oh, in touch with that. That's great. That's great stuff. Chris, this is all great. Um, we've been talking to Chris Stotts. He is the Global Entrepreneur in Residence at Founders Institute. Um, he's also the Managing Director of uh, Responsible Solutions with his partner, Russell Brand. And uh, you've mentioned Jenny, Jenny Chang several times as well. Um, and um, I want to remind our listeners, this is the Accelerator podcast with Michael Conniff available on all major platforms uh, for podcasting, also on YouTube and video and Spotify now and video. So make sure to um, uh, look for that. Give us a, a good rating if you like what we're doing. Subscribe for sure. Tell your friends. Share it. Um, you can find more of me and my writing on michaelconiff.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-C-O-N-N-I-F-F.com. And uh, don't be afraid to contact me on LinkedIn where I do a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of business. And that's where Chris and I met. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for uh, doing this. You've been a tremendous, uh, you, you are definitely the, the, first, the first part of a new phase for uh, this podcast. And uh, it's clear you're doing God's work. So thanks so much. And uh, I we'll, appreciate get you you, back, we'll get you back here soon. We're just getting started. I'll enjoy it. Okay. Thank thanks a lot.